The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. This year, there was one Kiwi in the 30 under 30 Forbes Asia list. It's a big honour. Past Kiwis on the list include people like Lord, Paris Goebel and Bowdoin Barrett. This year, our entry was the lead of a dynamic creative agency that in a few short years since being founded in the last year of uni has gone from a home operation to working for some of our biggest brands. You would have seen their work even if you don't know it. When rogue society changed to scapegrace, they turned to them. Maybe you've seen video for Les Mills International or blunt umbrella spots following you around on Facebook. Along the way, our guest has been involved in making a book called Hideaways and had a hand in founding social influencer agency, The Social Club. The agency we're talking about is Motion Sickness, and the founder is Sam Stutchbury. He'll be talking at a PwC Herald's Talk event about how you ignore Generation Z at your peril. Your peril! To talk the journey, Sam Stutchbury joins us now. G'day, thanks for coming along. G'day, thanks for having me. Hey, so so tell me how it was that you came to start Motion Sickness. Well, it's been a bit of a journey, to be honest. Um, we started it in university in Otago. So um, I went down there to study for three years doing marketing and advertising. And I'm sure a few people recognise the feeling approaching the end of your degree and didn't really know what to do. And everyone was applying for grad jobs. And to be honest, I just didn't really feel ready to work for somebody. And at the time... It was kind of the early days of Facebook and Instagram and stuff starting to move and we sort of saw a bit of an opportunity for an agency specialising in the content and social media space really and it kind of, to be honest, it really just snowballed from a little idea and just things started to work and we just really just stuck with it. What was that insight that you you started with, the idea that the creative should be uh, stuck to the actual delivery? For sure, yeah. I think that was a big gap that we saw is that... um, there was this amazing creative in New Zealand and really talented people, but I, I, we did see there was a bit of a gap with creative being produced for platform and for those specific niches. And I think that's a big thing that we try and do now is um, designing that creative specifically where it's going to be placed. And I just think there's little idiosyncrasies in everywhere you place it. And yeah, it's, it's kind of what we really, really wanted to focus on. Yeah. And being in Otago, um, mm. what, what was that like as a um, marketing and advertising space? Because I guess it's not like... Uh, say say you go to AUT in Auckland and then mm. you get like a, a job being a runner on a production and next thing you know you're kind of working for a big established agency. Yeah. Um, well, I think our experience in Dunedin was probably as cliche as you can get. You know, if you think about a Scarfee student, it was pretty much that. So the experience was very much, um, it was really cool and we learned a lot. But I think 
I came from more of a marketing background at Otago, so I did marketing with some advertising paper and actually went through the design school doing communication design, so it kind of gave a bit of a cross-section. Um, and the other partners in the business, Hillary and Alex, they both came for Otago as well and did mar- um, Hillary did marketing and Alex actually did law, so it was a bit of a mixture. Um, but yeah, it just kind of gave us a good foothold in understanding marketing but also understanding the visual side of it as well, which I think was really valuable. Yeah, tell me about getting started with those two. So are they founders as well in the company? Yeah, so we've gone through a bit of a journey since we started, but um, Alex has kind of been there from the beginning and he went to high school, same high school as me. We've been friends for a long time. Um, Jono, who's one of my best mates as well, he actually started the businesses. He was involved in the business with, at the beginning as well. So there was three us three mates starting it, lived together in a flat and just sort of best mates giving it a crack really. Um and then since then, John has actually moved on. He's gone to focus on music in London. And then Hillary, who's my partner outside of work, my life partner, um, she's actually um, she's been working with us for a while. And she's actually bought into the business as well, and she kind of leads the strategy side of things. Which working with a partner is actually all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bet it has its its moments. How, so, how did you you kind of like three mates in the flat? Yeah, take the idea from um, we should give this a crack to getting yeah. yourselves your first clients. Well, I think. We actually, um, it was really funny, like our first job was actually for the university. So we started doing, you know, as a lot of people doing music videos and sort of free stuff to begin with. And then the university hit us up to do some stuff um, that developed into doing work for Dunedin Tourism, which was really great for us to kind of like cut our teeth in our style. And then our first big break, I guess, was we were moving up to Auckland anyway, because we'd finished sort of done our time in Dunedin and we're all from Auckland and Diane Foreman from Emerald Foods, she actually got in touch with us. She saw some of our content and asked us if we wanted to do all the social strategy and content for all of their brands. So that was New Zealand Natural, Moven Pit, Kalinchi Gold. So that was kind of a big, a big breaking point for us to really have a decent go at a bigger brand in Auckland and be more involved than just producing a video. Yeah. How did you get an intro to uh, Diane Foreman, one of our most successful <laughs> yeah. business people? <laughs> she actually... Funny enough, saw one of our videos on Facebook. So um, I guess that's a big thing with us is people often ask us, you know, how do you grow your business? What's your strategy? And to be honest, I guess the nature of our work is that lots of people see it. So uh, we just focused on doing good work and more people see it and more people hear about us. And yeah, she literally just saw a video on Facebook and got in touch. So it was a bit of a stroke of luck. And was that one of the first jobs that we, you were actually looking after the media by as well? Which, the, like the history of advertising... The advertising company's basically creative was just a, a nice little wrapper so they could sell more media where all yeah. the money was. And then it broke into kind of specialist media and creative. And now it seems like it's going back again. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the one thing I learned off Mad Men is that they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the creatives are free. But um, but I think, um, yeah, it's interesting the change, right? Like, I definitely think that that the days of having, you know, a separate media company, like you'll produce this creative and you'll palm it off to your media company and they'll do that media buy. To me, I think that's a bit flawed. And I think that's the space that we're working in is that when you've got this creative, for us anyway, the media buy and the strategy behind that is so tied into what you've produced and so specific of what you want to achieve. Um, I feel that sometimes it can miss the mark when it's not controlled in the same space. So yeah, our intersection really is that the creative strategy, often the social media and digital, and then the media buy and how all of those come together. Yeah. Yeah, so how does how does that work? So um, when you went and did that for uh, Diane Foreman's companies, mm. did you say, look, we should take it all, or did they just want it all done? Uh, how, how do you do that? Um, they didn't really know too really either. It was kind of like a bit of an organic thing, but 
like that was I think one thing is that we just assumed that was how it's done. Like none of us had, none of us have ever worked at another agency, and I think that's been a really big positive for us that we've never gone in with a preconceived idea of how things should be done or the processes or bureaucracy and a lot of the red tape that I think we just said, oh, this kind of makes sense. Like we're doing the content and the social, we should probably just do the media as well because we can't, we understand it and I think it's going to work better and we just kind of did it. And that's been a bit of our approach. And, and so the media, I probably should have explained it for people yeah. who aren't in advertising, the, the media being uh, the, the buying of the actual ads mm. that the creative you make are the ads and yeah. then you pay to place them on yeah. at the moment. It's basically what, Facebook and Instagram? Yeah. For New Zealand, um, 90% of the campaigns we do are through Facebook and Instagram and it's the most efficient platform. Um, and I think to put it into perspective, if you're a business and you're putting out um, content on Facebook and Instagram, if you're not promoting that content or buying media, generally you're only reaching about 5% of your audience or as much as the audience you could be. Whereas if you're paying for media, the way Facebook and Instagram make their money, which is why they're killing it, is um, they're just a marketplace. So you'll pay to put this ad in front of somebody and you're bidding against other people. So it's just a marketplace. And I think the reason it was so revolutionary is that um, it just lowered the barriers to entry. You know, if you were a business and you wanted to advertise, usually in like the Mad Men eras, you know, you'd have to buy an ad in the newspaper or on the radio or whatever. And, and there's a set fee for that. Whereas if you're a new brand in New Zealand and you want to test the waters, you could promote something for 20 bucks because there's no minimum amount. You're just going to reach less people. And the absolutely famous kind of ideas in advertising, you know, um, the, the, the chairs of the biggest companies in the world would say things like, oh, I know half of my advertising works. I just don't know which half. Yeah, yeah. And the really revolutionary thing out of Facebook and Instagram was anyone could just jump into you know, you push booster post and then yeah. choose some audiences that you want to point it at, and then it tells you to the to the click what's going on, which mm-hmm. has has changed the world, hasn't it? For sure, and I think it's um, I mean, the stuff we do now is like right. Yeah, there's a, there's a thing called business manager on Facebook, and it's a, it's a bit of a prick sometimes. Like it, it can be a bit of a nightmare, but pretty much this the business manager we're in the back end of Facebook and Instagram, and and cr- essentially creating like an a conventional sales funnel on Facebook, you would have heard lots about funnels and pretty much all you're doing is you're reaching a huge amount of people, then you're remarketing them with another piece of information that's more specific, then you might retarget them if they're like abandoned car on the website. So it's kind of just taking them through that journey and that's a huge part of what we do. And I think, um, yeah, it's just interesting that how that's kind of changed and allowed people to do that and you're able to track, as you say, every dollar. For example, um, Blunt Umbrellas, who we do a lot of stuff for, are awesome New Zealand company, a big part of what they do is their e-commerce and we'll go into a region, for example, launch them into, we might launch them into the UK and we'll say, we've spent $2,000 on these ads and we can track exactly the figures of revenue that they've taken through their e-commerce site. So it's just, as you say, it's a game changer for people to be able to track their money. And yeah, let's let's look at how, because, you know, funnel is something that, you know, some people listening will be, um, you know, so deep in the funnel, it's disturbing, but other people... It's a big um, buzzword, yeah. yeah. Other people might be like, well, what, what's that? So talk us through how one of those works. So for mm. something like a, a new product going into a new country where no yeah. one's heard of them, what kind of stuff do you do at the top of the funnel and what does yeah. that mean? Well, I guess at the top of the funnel, the main thing is you're just trying to create awareness for that product. So... The simplest way to think about it is just creating a bit of noise sort of to cut through. So um, I'll use Blunt Umbrellas as the example again. Like One of the things we did for their US launch was 
we seeded a fake viral video to, uh, you probably would have heard of Unilad, their Facebook page. They often post a lot of viral type videos and we did a fake viral video which was kind of shot on iPhone, so it looked viral. People in the wind with their umbrella being shot by like hoses, kind of ridiculous stuff. And it got picked up by Unilad, um, which got seen a lot in the States. So that was a good example of just creating a lot of noise. There wasn't really a big sell in the video. And then I guess when you drop down that funnel, you're often retargeting them with um, more specific messaging. So it might be for a specific product, or it might be um, targeting someone in New York with New York messaging, and then um, they might have visited the website when they heard about more. And then you drop down the funnel a little bit more and you might be remarketing people who visited the website and looked at a specific product and hit in with that product. And then it kind of gets very complicated because it might split off and you're creating an audience of people that abandon their car and you're hitting with, a, with them that. And I guess the tools that you can have on Facebook and Instagram now are pretty creepy. I'm sure people are aware of like the creepiness of data. Mm. Um, but you, you, you guys might have heard of things of called lookalike audience which is pretty much if I'm a company that has a an email database of 10,000 people that have purchased my product I can plug that into Facebook create they'll Facebook will link those email addresses up to the people on Facebook and then I'll create an audience that uh similar to those people but aren't those people so so do similar things on Facebook have bought similar yeah, things well Facebook will have measured millions of yeah. actions that you've taken on Facebook and then as you would never be able to figure out who those people are based on interest or location or anything. So I think that's a big thing is that Facebook's algorithm and the data they kept from you is crazy. So using that to your advantage is is, is, is a game changer, yeah. Yeah, I think part of it, like, you know, the, the magic of Facebook though. there. Yeah, yeah so, so that funnel and those audiences and the like, they're basically just, you know, the, the simplest way to boil it down is you make a really big set of people who have some kind of interest in your product and then you keep putting more rules in mm. to make audiences, which are smaller sets, definitely based on what they've done, visited the website. Or watched most of the video. Or watched, yeah, yeah. watched most of the video, clicked on it, yeah. ad, um, liked your page, whatever yeah. it might be, visited your website in the last 30 days. Mm. You can set all those rules, and as the sets get smaller, you end up with people more and more likely to buy. Exactly. Um, and the cost to convert those to actually buy is lower. So that's that's the thing is if you were to say I've got this ad that's just to buy this blunt umbrella and it goes out to everybody in America, it's going to be quite expensive yeah. to convert those. But if you've dropped those down, like you'll say, you're you're increasing the probability that they're going to purchase your product. And ads like buy my umbrella are so uninteresting to people. Very few people engage with them, and mm. so Facebook charges you more to put them in front of people. Yeah. But ads with like a cool viral video concept, yeah, people want to see, so they charge you less. So it's cheaper to build the top of the funnel than to get that the bloody funnel the funnel yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and so that that's really cool to dig into that idea because yeah. i think we've mentioned it on here a few times yeah. and it's um and i think the one thing to remember is that i see a lot of companies and marketing experts getting very deep in the funnel but um the one thing to remember is that creative is always the variable like you can have the best funnel in the world strategically understand all the platforms but if your creative is rubbish and and it's not something that people are interested in or it's not on brand or it's not cool um, it's going to be expensive and it's not going to work. So I think that creative technology changes, but I don't think hmm. the quality of that creative, that's always going to be the variable of success here. So, so that's kind of like, I, I guess that's the difference of your agency. In uh, Traditionally, people would have had uh, a media agency, mm. maybe a strategic agency, yep. um, maybe a creative agency, and maybe a production company. And so you've pulled those four exactly. areas yeah. in there. And, and I think that that has been a key factor of our success is kind of, the intersection of all those things and understanding all those different arms. Um, you know, like, yeah, we can we can produce great content, but um, 
strategically what's that you can have an amazing video but it doesn't achieve anything so understanding it's going to actually achieve something that you want and so you said you said something really interesting before that um not having worked for anyone else was an advantage mm. how how was that an advantage i guess when you're going into somewhere and going hey not only do we not know about video production we don't we also don't know about strategy we also don't know about ad buying we also look like young yeah, dirty all, students we're also young dirty students <laughs> yeah. give us all of your budgets at once exactly. rather than just one budget that seems like quite a big conversation to have it it was and um that was one of the biggest challenges to be honest like we'd 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 be um very conscious of our age and our experience to begin with and i think it's because we didn't necessarily have the work to we I think we always relied on our talent and we've we've got a really talented team, but we'd go into these meetings and these little guys that would grow our stubble out so we looked a little bit older, you know, and then we'd go into these meetings and we'd be asking them, telling them how to run their company. Um, but I think it took and, us... And telling them to fire three existing... Exactly, yeah. ...maybe relationships yeah. they have. Um, but I think it just took us a long time to figure out. Like, it took us a couple of years that our age was actually an advantage. A lot of the companies we're working for, they wanted an age of our perspective. Um, we're digital natives. We've grown up with social media and digital. We understand how to talk in that that language and, and what works and what doesn't. So when we realised that, um, yeah, we should see it as an advantage, it was a big game changer for us. It gave us a lot more confidence. What kind of things did you have to learn along the way? Because most, I mean... Running what, a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like but most people's um, experience, especially in the creative industries, which is... I mean, they're not called it, but really it's an apprentice agency. Like, uh, no matter what you come into, whether it's being a production runner on a production company or a junior creative in advertising or a junior media buyer um, for a big media company um, or, or even a researcher for a strategy thing, all of these businesses, people spend two years to three years getting paid less than nothing to mm. learn from the bottom. And so you as a team uh, missed that kind of um, modern slavery kind of uh, indentured yeah. labour yeah. approach to um, to business, but also would have missed that chance to like um, learn and soak it up from a whole lot of people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think we learned a lot of that learning on the job by just doing it, you know, like those initial couple of years, we definitely learned by mistakes and definitely crafted our identity in terms of a business, um, but it was very much just kind of st- strap it on and give it a go, you know. So I think, um, yeah, we just kind of like learned on the fly. But as I said, the one thing that we always fell back to is that we were we had good taste and we had good talent and we kind of understood marketing. So that was the thing we fell back on. But yeah, it, I remember when we first started, I was like, oh, I, we don't how do how do agencies do a strategy document? You know, what does that look like? You know, so it was kind of figuring out figuring out those things as we went. But I do think it was an advantage because we just approached things differently and didn't have a preconceived idea of how it should be done. How do you fill in those gaps? Uh, yeah, well, to be honest, the hardest thing about the business wasn't necessarily growing. It was those more functional aspects. How do you quote for a job? How do you pay tax? How do you do a presentation doc? Like those are the things that was were harder and we we met a few people on the way that were really helpful. Like we had really good accountants, and um, people were really helpful in the business and really supportive. But it was very much trial and error type thing. Yeah, and a lot of bigger companies, as you would have got bigger clients, mm. they kind of rely on it's a comfort factor that there's a million 
emails and processes and spreadsheets yeah. and 15 people sitting around in folding chairs and puffer jackets on a shoot with a monitor and most pointing of yeah most of it's utterly pointless yeah. but like it's it's their comfort factor so yeah. do you tell people look don't worry you know when three of you turned up instead of 20 is that is that a good thing yeah i mean we a big thing we say is just um let our work speak for itself that's what we feel we should be judged on and that's always been our thing is that yeah we are we don't have a lot of red tape and you know like often the person they're dealing with like i'm the creative director but sometimes i'm holding the camera you know like we don't like to have those barriers and i think that's really important but yeah do we just like to let our week's work speak for itself and let that that do all the talking yeah and how about learning things like the actual you know production or editing or how to set up a funnel and all the rest of it uh, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think when we started, I remember being on our first shoot in, in Dunedin and literally on my phone Googling how to video on a Canon 7D, you know, so it's very much on the fly. So I think, um, but we've definitely learned along the way. But I guess I, because I did design and like I direct all of our content, I, because I did design how to frame a shot and what looks good and composition, that's something that I always, always knew and I've always been a very visual person. Um, but I think that kind of ties into that whole Gen Z thing is that the internet now is like the middleman of information. So anything you need to know, you can Google or YouTube and learn. So I think that's definitely reduced the barriers to entry in in a whole variety of career paths. What do you think of that term, Gen Z? Yeah, I, yeah. You, you seem to be using it kind of like an almost like verbal scare quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At, at your peril, don't don't yeah, ignore yeah. them. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like people like to put labels on things right like gen z millennials and, and so are millennials now old are they apparently yeah yeah, yeah. so um gen z are uh, born 1995 or after that's generally how people um define them um but i think you've got to remember there's a sliding scale like i'm 28 i probably have more in common with a lot of older gen z than i do with a lot of millennials because there's such a sliding scale and it's kind of arbitrary to put labels on them but yeah it's very interesting the we employ some Gen Z and we get lots of people applying for jobs for us. And we also, a lot of the clients we work with, we're advertising to Gen Z and the kind of little quirks of that generation is really interesting. And I think it's a really positive thing. Um, they're super entrepreneurial, um, have very socially conscious, but also they're very skeptical. So as a brand, like you would have seen stuff gone badly, then they're willing to rip out a brand online at their expense if they think it just smells a bit bit funny and is, is a bit of bullshit. So I think... Yeah, there's there's quirks to the generation, but it's going to be really interesting to see how they change change the world. Yeah, yeah. And, Hopefully for the best. <laughs> and so you're speaking at a um, a Herald Talks event mm. about um, ignoring Generation Z at your peril. What, what's your what's your message? Um, well, I think at the talk, pretty much, I, I, a big thing is our um, business journey kind of defined like a millennial mindset and kind of giving it a go and not wanting to work those standard hours, and then. I think along that process, we've learned a lot against about Gen Z because of who we employ and who we advertise to. So I guess in the talk, without stealing too much of my thunder, I just want to, I guess, define a lot of the characteristics and also outline some of the aspects that we've seen in terms of marketing to to Gen Z. Um, some of the aspects that you need to keep in mind because I think there's a few, there are definitely a few ways you can trip up if you're not advertising to them in the right way. Let's talk about what makes good content because a sure. few a few times in there you've you've talked about how having the taste or having things that are on brand and that are, um, you know, good, creative, yeah. Yeah. Uh, make, make, make the difference. So, you know, do you, do, you have, um, do you have a process to define kind of like 
what each brand should be doing or do you have like a style you bring to things or do you mm. just kind of, does it feel right? Well, how do you run it? Yeah, um, I guess I think the place we start with is definitely always from kind of a strategy perspective. Um, that's one thing that I don't think can't be missed is you, you see a lot of brands overseas that they'll just feel like they've got to constantly post content and it's not really achieving anything. So a big thing is we definitely start from a strategy perspective first. Like what do we want to achieve? Where is this going to be placed? Um, what's the brand? It kind of answers some of those questions. And then from there, it's kind of laying it up, layering it up in terms of yeah, adding the magic and adding that wow factor and making sure that it lands well. But um, yeah, a big thing I would recommend is, you know, thinking about where it's going to be placed and thinking what it's going to be used for. Um, as an example, you know, across all of our clients, probably 80% or more of our content is consumed through a mobile phone. Mm. So if you're thinking about producing a video, you know, um, super widescreen, like 90% of the people don't turn their phone. So it's about like two centimeters in height on your social media feed. So thinking about that at the beginning, you know, so we're often shooting stuff that's full portrait to fill up a mobile phone or shooting for Instagram stories, stuff like that. So really having those thoughts at the beginning. Um, and then a big, a big thing in terms of the actual creative is people have, as I said before, people are super skeptical now. So you kind of don't want to pull the wool over their eyes. And my opinion is it on it is if you're producing a piece of good content that wants to entertain somebody and is just building the brand, entertain them, right? Don't try and slip in too much silly stuff and water it down and if you're trying to sell to them just sell to them like people know they're being sold to mm. and sometimes people want to be sold to because they want that product so I, I think it's kind of just being honest with what you're doing um because people you you can watch an ad and you can just obviously see they're trying to slip in those brand lines or product messaging and people know what it is like that people aren't idiots so people are just so switched on with advertising and they're being exposed too much to it they're very aware of what's happening so i think you just can't pull the wool over people's eyes how about things like, you know, you, you make a really interesting point about the videos. People don't even flip their screen. And so most of them are <laughs> Tiny, yeah. pretty, pretty uh, suboptimal kind of viewing experiences as to how they were designed. And time as well, like the mm. ideal duration of clips. Like a few years ago, like uh, the, the case studies were two minutes and then they were 90 seconds and then 45 and then 30 and then 15 to get to be a YouTube pre-roll and then nine seconds for Instagram. And now it's like gifs. Like yeah. it's like, and I, I know there's different things at each point of um, of, of the spectrum there, yeah. but quite remarkable how um, much more and how shorter these pieces of content have to be. Definitely. And I think um, a lot of that comes down to where the content's being consumed, you know, like that's important to think about. If someone's on their on their phone, on Facebook, and get delivered a piece a video on there, like they're probably not sitting down on their couch, the only thing around them, their phone, fully absorbed in their phone, they're probably at the traffic lights yeah, the, or on the bus. <laughs> yeah, on the bus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, on the, the bus. The, um, the sound might not even yeah, be on. like um, – Across our clients, around 80% view without sound mm. across all all social media. So that's really important. So you might have a beautiful video with this incredible voiceover. 80% of people aren't going to hear that voiceover, you know. So it's important to keep those things in mind. But in terms of the length, our feelings are it's kind of super short or super long. Like there's kind of nothing in between. Um, so if you're thinking about a social media piece, if you can – people are super time poor. But if you can deliver a piece in kind of 20 seconds that's really absorbed on a phone, like – can be viewed without sign is really hooky that's great but also you hear a lot of people saying people have short attention spans now they do but we also binge watch handmaid's tale on netflix like 
or, or you know, like we'll binge. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard one to binge watch. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit intense. A, you need a recovery period. We'll, after go, we'll go with Mad yeah. Men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I'm with you. But they can binge. So people do have the attention span. But yeah. It's about the placement. When someone's on Netflix, they're probably at home in bed with their laptop and got nothing to do. And we're happy to binge something on there. So I think it's about the platform. Yeah, and, and the quality of the content as yeah. well. And a good example of something that um, your team, uh, you, you produced recently, was the changeover from Rogue Society Gin to Scapegrace. Mm. And that was a longer form, not super long, but a longer form. About two piece minutes, of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, longer form piece of content. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was a real storytelling piece. Yeah, that was a really interesting brief. Like Mark from... Um, Rogue Society previously, he, he he came to us and said, look, we're going to change our name in New Zealand for these reasons. Can you come up with a campaign for it? So it was quite a big, big brief. Um, but I think it comes back to, that was very much like a statement piece. If you think about, it wasn't just like a random piece of content with no meat. We were talking to an audience that was interested. They already knew of the brand. It was a fa- quite a fascinating story. So it was a statement piece. So there's always outliers to the rules. And I think when you've got something really important to see, people will engage with it, even if it's longer. And and, and there was some real whys to answer. You yeah, know, exactly. Like, why would you change your name? For sure. You know, what is making it happen, you know? Yeah, and, and like, you know, there's been a, a few other good ones that I've seen, like the New Zealand uh, recruitment video that we saw that was longer form. It was had a bit of a narrative. It was quite funny. Like, that was a longer the, piece. The, the police recruitment Sorry, yeah, video. Sorry, yeah, the police recruitment video. Um, Yeah, that was really good as well. And I think, yeah, if you've got those statement pieces they can work, but for most brands, especially smaller brands, that I just don't think the amount of time that you're going to invest into something, if you're making a video for Facebook, you know, if you make a three-minute video, like probably 80% of the people are not going to make it past 20 seconds. Yeah, but it, but yeah. if you look at the platform, um, something like if you had a really good YouTube following and, and you wanted to make a, a longer-form YouTube doco-style thing, then that's, the placement is different because people are probably watching on their smart TV or on their laptop. So it's definitely thinking about the placement, yeah. And that that kind of, you know, if we're looking at the two big changes to how people are um, how people are consuming that information and finding out new things, you know, it's not a 30-second ad on TV. It's some kind of content online that yep. comes to them directly from a brand or it's um, coming through trusted intermediaries like influencers yep. on, um, uh, on, on platforms like Instagram and Facebook and the like as well. And so somewhere along the journey there, you had a hand in starting the social club to kind of make that channel work. T- tell me about that. Yeah, so um, we were um, involved in founding that company and it was, a, yeah, it was a really interesting journey. And I think it's born out of the fact uh, when we started the company, yeah, influencer um, strategy and influencer marketing was very new um, and it was kind of just emerging and we were using influencers for some of our campaigns. Just by kind of like hitting them up by DM or something? Yeah, pretty much, yep. yeah. Just messaging them can we send you some ice cream, that type of stuff, you know? Um, but I think, yeah, we sort of saw there was an opportunity for a, a digital platform. We met uh, Justin and Georgia and and Dave, a group of people that sort of founded the company together. And um, yeah, it's kind of developed over time as the influencer, influencer um, space has grown as well. But um, yeah, that space is interesting because people think it's something new, but there's always been celebrity endorsements, you know? I think the difference now is with influencers is that, they're essentially their own media companies. They've got this huge audience. They understand the audience. They've got people they can talk to, um, and they're a captive audience as well. So that's the difference, I think, is that you're kind of tapping into that as if you would buy an ad in the newspaper. You're sort of buying time with their audience, but the difference is, is how do you have that conversation authentically? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like um, 
thousands of little niche media brands mm. are, these, are these people and they've got their own niche media followers. Mm. Um, but also they've become, it's really democratised so much creative. You know, it used to be if you were a, a, um, a, an inter, a person with an entertaining point of view that wanted to make things, you had to go and work for a production company or a media agency or something in order to make that happen. And now so many people are able to do things just purely to their own creative expression if they can find an audience that yeah. backs it up, which is, it's really cool, isn't it? I think so. It's that whole thing of like living in a world of niches is, is like really fascinating. And I think it's definitely because obviously with the internet and the internet's still quite young, you mm. know, like, and the fact that everybody's so globally connected now is that, it becomes easier to form those niches if you like playing um, World of Warcraft um, and streaming those videos. There are millions of people that are doing that from around the world that can pull together through online platforms and forums and stuff like that. So I guess it's easier to bring those people together. Um, and we talk about the whole niche thing with our clients a lot is that being having a niche is really is fine now because it's just we're so globally connected that you can market to those people and you can sort of control that conversation. Um, because Ooh. the audience is so much bigger. But can, can you control? I mean, one of the real... Be a part um, of that conversation, yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> one, one of the amazing kind of changes in that has been rather than the brand and their, you know, strategist saying, this is what it's going to be, you go to the influencer and you say, could you please talk to your audience? How we, you know, And if it's going to be effective, what, what I've seen is the most effective ones are where the brands go, well, you know your audience, you control the creative, which is a very scary thing for traditional people. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of it's a big trust um, play from a lot of brands, and as you said, like the, the influencer campaigns that are done badly is where you can spot it a mile off. Is where they've really had a preconceived idea of what they want the campaign to be like, and you can scroll through the influencer's feed and you'll see it just stands out like a sore thumb, you yeah, know. So, yeah. and it's kind of counterproductive, right? Because the whole point of using an influencer is to use their talent um, weave your way into that conversation which the tone of that conversation they've created so yeah I think that's a really good point is that giving the f- uh, influencer the flexibility to be a part of that creative and these influencers are really skilled and they produce amazing content so I think it's, it you know, you're paying for the placement and, and, and being a part of that conversation but they're also kind of like their own production companies as well and they produce yeah. really good content so yeah utilise that yeah. And so along the way, like you've grown to be kind of a, what kind of like, how big are you now as a team? Yeah. So um, we're based in, um, on Cross Street in Auckland. Um, so we have about eight full-time staff and then freelancers and we scale up for, for a bit of video shoots and stuff. But yeah, all of our sort of creative is done in-house and we've got a really talented team that we've sort of worked together for a while now. Um, but yeah, I think it, to, for me, it's less about the size of us, it's, but it's, um, the campaigns and who we're working with over the past sort of year we've started to do more and more international stuff which mm. has been awesome and New Zealand companies advertising overseas and then also just purely overseas companies which has been really uh, awesome experience and, and is that like the story of the internet in general where if you can just find an, a niche and it doesn't matter where it is globally it's people all who share a similar taste yeah. rather than changing your output for what happens to be in the New Zealand market. Exactly. And and I think just the barriers to entry have just reduced so much. You know, um, back to the Blunt Umbrellas example, they've, it's an umbrella, but it's just really well designed. Um, it's great New Zealand design, that fashionable. And like for them to have a crack into launching into um, Singapore, for example, like the barriers to entry are not as hard as they used to be. You can test the waters with those places and 
we're definitely seeing that a lot with clients is that use, using social media and digital, they can test these markets around the world in these different niches. And, and it's a reasonably low investment to do that. Yeah. And on the flip side to all of these, um, you, you know, multi-platform um, mm. new media enterprises, you popped out a book along the way. Yeah, yeah. A book. That's kind of random. <laughs> Tell us about this paper thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, that actually, yeah, so I um, it started, I photographed a book for Penguin Random House a while ago, which was, um, they just hired me as a photographer. Um, but then they said, oh, would you actually like to do a book in terms of like actually produce it with us? And to be honest, it was it was a really good concept. It was called Hideaways, um, and it was all based around getting off the grid and these sort of hidden little cabins around the country and being disconnected. And it was kind of a good excuse to get away at the weekend. Um, I love I love the outdoors and big nature guys, so having the excuse to get out of the city was really great. And, yeah, all of the stuff we produce generally is consumed on digital and social media, so we never really have anything tangible. So it was pretty nice to be able to do something not for a client and something that was actually holdable, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was a cool experience. took a while, but it was fun. Ah, that's so rad. Yeah. And a couple of questions that we always ask people on the show. Um, what, what's the advice that you give for people who um, are thinking of starting out as entrepreneurs? Um, to be honest, doing something that you genuinely enjoy, I think a lot of people go into startups for the wrong reasons, potentially just for the money, trying to get rich quick overnight. But the reality is if you're going to be successful, um, it's probably going to take over your life and it's going to be a couple of years of your life to get something going. And inevitably, if you've done it just for the money, you're probably going to get bored of it. So yeah, doing something you're really passionate about and we're all creative people and um, getting to know clients and producing creative work we're really passionate about regardless of, of the money in the business. So that's kind of kept us going. Yeah, so I definitely think just doing something you're passionate about because otherwise you'll just lose interest. Is there anything that you wish you'd known earlier? How to run a business, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. how do you find that out, you know? Like- um, yeah, once again, it was just a thing by trial and error. But um, I think the other thing is potentially we were a bit naive to begin with, assuming that we haven't been like badly stung or anything, but there's definitely been people that we assumed their interests were really good, but potentially they weren't be like, no one's probably got as good, in, as good intentions as you and take some things with a grain of salt. And yeah, we were potentially a little bit naive with trusting everybody to begin with. Um, but yeah, I think we've kind of just worked it as we go, but yeah, running the business and the, the nuts and bolts of running a business was probably the one thing we would have been useful to know more of. Yeah. And you know, are there any kind of like words you live by or things you come back to when things get hard or um, words that define the business? Yeah, well, there's a couple, but um, a big thing would just be um, doing what feels right. That's a big thing that we feel go with is that, you know, with with strategy and opinions and um, trends and technology, um, sometimes it can get a bit foggy of what, what you should do. But I think generally people know when they're producing a piece of work or making a decision, to be honest, within a few seconds, you generally have a feeling in your gut of what's the right decision and kind of just going with that. Um, and it's the same with our business decisions that we've obviously, you've obviously opportunities come up and sometimes they're really good opportunities, but potentially don't feel that right. And it might be other reasons you're doing it. So we just try and stick with our gut and do what feels right with pretty much everything we do. Mm. Yeah. And the 30 under 30 Forbes Asia list. Yeah. What's that meant for you? Has that had the phone ringing or, you know, mum and dad proud or yeah, mainly mum was stoked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Cutting every bit of newspaper clipping out the Herald and stuff. But, um, yeah, it was, to be honest, it was really unexpected. Um, I got hit up by Forbes um, yeah, about a year ago now, I think, that um, I'd been found and been put on the shortlist for, for this year's event. And then 
Um, after there was pretty intensive interview process and, and, and application stuff to, to find out more about the business. And when we found out the shortlist, I looked at it and there was, you know, the biggest K-pop band in the world and stuff like that. So I didn't really think I had a chance. But when we found out it was great and it was just, it was really humbling to be recognized on that global scale for the work we've done. Um, yeah, and it's definitely helped the business in terms of having that credibility and especially in that market that advertising space. Yeah. And internationally, internationally I guess. Yeah. 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 It's been helped with those international brands as well, but yeah, it was super unexpected, but um, yeah, stoked to be a part of it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you um, for coming and chatting to us today. No, thanks for having me. Sam Stutchbury of uh, Motion Sickness. You can find them online and their ads will follow you around the internet we'll forevermore. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you very much for coming on, Sam Stutchbury, and thank you very much for having us along. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.